Make your way to 1 Kings chapter 20. It's always such a joy to be with you here. We pray for you. Regularly cheer you from a very short distance away, but as we're driving up here, it's just, this is a whole different world, isn't it? We are so thrilled that, that you're here and that this light has been um, lifted up in this community. We're grateful to partner together and to serve the same Lord together. Now, I want us to consider this narrative today, perhaps familiar with us, but uh, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 20, uh, Abraham Kuyper was a, served in the Netherlands as a Reformed pastor and author, educator, member of parliament, and even prime minister for four years. He left us this enduring word. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This cosmic declaration leaves nothing untouched. Indeed, the Lordship of Jesus Christ extends over every moment of history, every atom of the universe, every decision that we make, and affection that we harbor. He is Lord. This means that then every word of gossip, every attitude of greed, every self-centered choice, every lustful thought, every cold dismissal of others or display of pride is really us saying, mine. I will rule this moment. I will control this relationship. I will determine the truth. I will order the future on terms of my making and all for my glory. Mine. It also means that any lack of faith is similarly a denial of the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. When we toy with conclusions such as this, this is a realm where God is not. These are circumstances in my life that Christ has abandoned. This relationship, this trial, God is not in this space. First, as Christ's disciples, we will recognize that our battle against sin, thinking in these two realms of sin and faith, our battle against sin involves submitting to Christ's lordship over every square inch of our lives at all times. Second, as Christ's disciples, we will recognize that our fight for faith rejects the sense that there is some place, some circumstance where God is not. May he strengthen us, each of us then, to consider, to confess with joy that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now in his kindness to us, God reveals himself to us in three ways, in words, in persons, and in events. And as we come to 1 Kings chapter 20, the Lord demonstrates his absolute sovereignty over every square inch by coupling together event and prophetic word to build us up in our faith. And we've gathered here today for that reason. May he use this text to do just that. It's absolutely dreadful to stop at verse 30. I will apologize for that now to cut this narrative in half. We have to do that today for sake of time. 
But all I'm going to do here just by way of outline is just to track kind of the development of the narrative. And then at the end, we'll come back to where we've started and just consider the application to our lives. But first of all, a Syrian coalition assaults Samaria and demands plunder. That takes a little bit to unpack here, but let's think of it. Verse 1 Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. On rare occasions, Syria and Israel got together, like when they fought against Syria. uh, Assyria, rather, the empire there. But at heart, Syria and Israel were bitter enemies. So Ben-Hadad joined forces here with 32 kings. I keep that in mind. These are kings. They may not be the best military men in the world, but they are aligned here with him, and they invade Israel. So they're working their way, if you watch the circles here, they're working their way down from the north, down to the south, to Samaria. Samaria is situated, that's this map, believe it or not, uh, but it's situated on a ridge if you can kind of picture Israel there in that central ridge, provided some great security for Jerusalem and Samaria because if an army came, they had to walk down this ridge and could be attacked from either side. And you had to make your way quite a ways in and survive to get to Samaria. Well, Ben-Hadad and these other kings have done that. It says that they've closed in on Samaria. The Hebrew word there speaks of a, a siege. So the army has surrounded the city of Samaria, and it's just kind of a, let's see who wins this battle of waiting. And those in Samaria, no food can come in, and so it's a really miserable situation as the Syrian king waits for them to fold. Now it says here that they went up to, often we think of heading south as going down, but for their emphasis here on elevation, a key point They worked their way up to Samaria. Keep that in mind. So again, strategically situated on this ridge. They work their way to that point, down that major road. They survive it. They get there. They they lay siege to the city. And all is going well for Ben-Hadad along these lines. Uh, Verse 2. Let's pick it up there. He sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel. This is Samaria, king Ahab. And he said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. So the messengers go into the city, they come back out. Verse 4, and the king of Israel answered, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Not a whole lot of fight there, is it? I'll give you my wives, my children, whatever. You can have them. Well, that seems to hit Ben-Hadad like, wait a minute, like there's no resistance at all? And so he kind of comes back and says, I I think I've overestimated your power. Verse 5, the messenger came again and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, message 2, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Yeah, Ahab, I'm not going to actually let you do this. We're going to actually come into you, and we're going to take everything that we want. My servants are going to enter your palace. They're going to take all that is of value to you. We are going to leave you absolutely devastated and impoverished, intending to enrich himself and humiliate 
Ahab. Well, King Ahab draws the line there and incites battle beginning at verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, for my silver, my gold, and I did not refuse him. Ahab knows that he's in a position of weakness, and he accepted the terms right away in that first offer. But, verse 8, all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. We catch what's going on here. They're saying, you know, there's a certain line where you just can't back down. If five burly young gang members surrounded me and Beth on the street and said to me, hand over your wallet. I I just know Dan would have a real hard time handing it over. (laughs) But I'd probably come to my senses and say, you've got me. I I cannot stand up to this. I give you my wallet, I save my life. But if those same five said to me, and give us your wife, I'd say, what? I can't win this fight, but I got to do it. Right? I, I can't say, yeah, that's all right, go ahead. That's kind of the position that they're in here. It's like, we cannot win this fight. We cannot beat the king of Syria. That was made evident in the first offer, the first terms of surrender. But the counselors, the war council says, well, there's nothing. We have no options here. He wants to take everything. We must fight him. Verse 8, do not listen or consent. And so, verse 9, so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I will do. First terms of surrender, okay. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So going outside the city to Ben-Hadad and giving him the response of the king. Verse 10, his response. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. The war is on. I will end you. I gave you a choice. Now I will reduce your city to rubble. And the king of Israel answered. So again, the messengers back and forth. Verse 11, the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. We encounter here one of the greatest responses of military history. <laughs> yeah, don't brag until you've won. These are incendiary words. Celebrate your victory after it's over, not before it's over. And this really riles Ben-Hadad. I suppose in some level it's meant to. The only thing that Ahab thinks he can win is a war of words. He can't win anything else. And so he gives him this line. In verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. As Ben-Hadad readies his troops for attack, we see him here gathering uh, with his men, drinking with the kings in their booths. That is probably, generally it was foliage that was just set up to uh, help them stay out of the sun. It's probably noontime where nobody moved. They just took naps or settled down or in their case drank themselves silly. 
But at verse 12, as we end that, you just think, here's where it's going. Here's what's going to happen. This Samaria is going to get crushed. Something really unexpected takes place. And this has to be set up with three facts that we draw from earlier in the book. First of all, 1 Kings 16.30. This is what it says. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That is, he broke covenant with God in spectacular ways as Israel's theocratic head. Point two. Ahab witnessed God's power and authority in the fireball that devoured Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel. If you remember that scene, Elijah runs ahead of Ahab to the city of Jezreel and announces the turn back to God. Didn't happen. Ahab witnessed that event, that God alone is God. And he just moved on with his idolatrous life. Thirdly, when Elijah fled to Mount Sinai, way to the south, God said, Ahab's dynasty is done. I will crush it. Chapter 19. What are we gaining here about Ahab? He's in big trouble with God. So by every indication here, we would expect that God would come down hard on Ahab. In fact, that Ben-Hadad would come into his palace and take everything that was his, empty out the city, and leave Samaria to die. But here's what we find. Verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, a guarantee right then in the head of Ahab, he's like, oh boy, here it goes again. I hate this word from the Lord, from these prophets. But what does he say? Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Facing a superior Syrian army, Ahab laid down like a frightened puppy. He knew that he stood no chance against Ben-Hadad. But God says of this battle, mine. Ahab, unlike Baal, I am here. And I will win this battle. And you will see again as you did on Mount Carmel that I am sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Ahab humbly seeks the prophet's further counsel in verse 14. I'm sure quite surprised. And Ahab said, verse 14, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. That Hebrew phrase, to begin the battle, means who will general the battle. Who is to lead the army. This is an amazing statement of humility on Ahab's part. I mean, who's going to lead the battle but the king? But he asks. And whether he fully conceives of it or not, he's acknowledging that the Lord is the general here. This is the Lord of hosts that's leading this battle, not me. And God reveals to him in verse 15 there how the battle is to flow. 
Uh, We see Ahab attacking then the Syrian coalition beginning at verse 16. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze. He and the 32 kings who helped him. And the servants of the governors of the district went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. Well, this has been happening constantly. Messengers going out back and forth. And it didn't, you know, really stop Ben-Hadad at all. There's some people coming out. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. It doesn't really matter to me what their message is, but just, just bring them in. Ben-Hadad is in a spot here where he's about to be surprised. It reminds me of General George Washington's decisive victory at Trenton, New Jersey, Christmas Day, late at night. It was between 29 and 32 degrees. Sleet was falling. The wind was howling from the northeast. It was Christmas Day. And the Hessians defending New Jersey, Trenton, for for the British were all drunk. Nobody is going out in this weather. On this day, in this place. Now, a little bit less dramatic, but it's the same calculus here. As he's drinking himself drunk, like nobody's coming out against us from Samaria. That's not even a possibility in his mind. So the inebriated Ben-Hadad doesn't realize that he's about to be attacked. Verse 19 So these went out of the city, the servants and the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So the once arrogant king flees on horseback, his army slaughtered, his chariot brigade decimated, It was a total defeat against all expectations. Why? Because the Lord of hosts said on that battlefield, mine. And that's the only reason. And even Ahab knows it. God declared the outcome of the battle before it happened in order to reveal to Israel that he is sovereign Lord over every square inch. And you shall know that I am God. That I am Yahweh. Well, the prophet warns of Syria's return beginning at verse 22. So uh, Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army is devastated. But verse 22, the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Ahab might have drawn that conclusion on his own. But again, it's an indication the Lord of hosts is running the battle. And he tells them, they're coming back. Get ready. And the servants that were going, now we're moving north to that circle up on the (laughs) top right. To the servants of the king of Syria, they say to him, here's what the problem was. Not pride. Not drunkenness. Not a foolish military failure. But their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plains, and surely we shall be stronger than they. 
Ahab may have thought Syria was finished, but preparing for them, turning it over to the Lord of hosts, now from the other angle, from the other side, Syria, through these deliberations, draws the conclusion that God is a God of location only in the hills. That was the case with pagan gods. They had certain territory that was assigned to them. This is God's territory, they say. They want to put him in that tiny little box. He can fight well on the hills, but get him down on the plains and our gods will win. We ascended the hill country to fight Samaria and lost. Let's get them to come down and God will stay put and we'll beat them on the plains. That was the dumbest war council in history. Right there. All the time people curse God. They declare that he doesn't exist. All the time people take his name in vain, reject his laws, and despise his presence. And in his mercy, God does nothing. He endures patiently. But if there is anything likely to excite God's wrath, anything to provoke God to come to wicked Ahab's aid, it was this. Tell Yahweh there is a square inch of this universe he does not rule and you had better duck because his glory is at stake. And because as a God of love, when his glory is at stake, the good of his creatures is at stake. He knows the devastating consequences to his creatures when such a falsehood is embraced. And so during the winter months, Ben-Hadad fires the coalition of kings, recruits more qualified military leaders, replenishes his war machine, and heads to battle in the spring with renewed purpose. And that leads to the next scene, verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Here now they're meeting in the middle on the plain. It's flat there, right to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 27. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. It's a great mismatch. Everything is different from the first time. The location, the supplies, the military leadership is advanced. The only thing that's the same from the time before is that Israel has a really small army. That's it. Verse 28, and a man of God came near. Here's word, word and event, word. The man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord, you is plural, shall know that I am the Lord. Y'all are going to see it again. Verse 29. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 
And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and a wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. The defeat was catastrophic for Ben-Hadad. His war machine is wiped out. And he learned by bitter experience that God is sovereign over every square inch. The question that remains in the text is, will Ahab finally get it? And sadly, the answer is no. But this text, 2023, speaks every bit as much to us. What about us? On these battlefields, God memorably demonstrates that he reigns sovereignly as Lord over every square inch. Here is an event, not necessarily that it needs to be repeated time and time and time and time again for us to believe it. But here's an event, here is a text that reminds us of who God is. And we dare not walk out these doors today and say, well, Ben-Hadad was an idiot. How foolish to take God on like that. Ahab, get a clue, man. Fall before the Lord of heaven and earth. He's rescued you again. Are you going to keep stealing your heart against him? And we go out kind of feeling good about ourselves and saying, well, there's a lot of dumb people in history. This is about us. This is about us. We must recognize that in our sin and unfaithfulness, we too declare places that where God is not. Where his sovereign reach does not quite extend. We do this on the one hand in our sinful choices. We say of some square inch of mind or body, mine. I will say what I want to say because I'm sovereign over my tongue, at least in this moment. I will view what God forbids me to see because this little place in the universe is mine. I will not love that unlovely person. I will not seek reconciliation. I will never forgive. I refuse to concede lordship over this relationship. God is not here. He's on a hill somewhere. I'm on the plain. God is not sovereign over my children. Not sovereign over my possessions. Not here. Not this place. Not my circumstances. This is mine. That's what sin is. That's what it says. We need to learn to see it in our hearts as we respond that way. Without ever articulating it. But very much evidencing that attitude. Sin. Faith. On the other side, the other hand, in the arena of faith, we determine that God is not sovereign over certain spaces. He's not in the space of my disease. He's abandoned me here. He can't win this one. Over my illness, he has no jurisdiction. He's not there. In the space of my loneliness... In the space of my isolation, in the space of my loss, God is not here. On the plain of my marriage, in the valley of my children's rebellion, Jesus is not Lord. Not here. And I would ask myself, have been, I ask you, where's that space for you? Where's that space? Where you are saying in your life, he's not here. 
Either taking sinful advantage or not trusting and believing his promises to you. You're saying in some way or other, the Lord is not here. Facing that space honestly, believer, remember that Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch. We have one event handed to us here just in this moment as we share it together today to remember that he is Lord of all. He is ever present He will never leave us or forsake us. In every trial and type of suffering that we ever endure in this world, He says over that, mine. The ultimate demonstration of this truth, of course, is not found in 1 Kings chapter 20. The ultimate demonstration of this truth is Jesus standing on the ultimate battleground, staring down death and saying, you're mine. For the redemption of my people, I conquer you, death. I conquer you forever. As we sung of it this morning, I break the power of canceled sin. By the payment of his life as the Lamb of God dying in our place, Christ pays the full penalty of our sin, breaking the power of sin over us. And so we gather at this table of the Lord as we remember that death until he comes. And gathered here we bear witness that against all that we deserve, against anything that we could dare expect, Christ has said of us, mine I purchase you with my blood. You are mine. So here with humbled hearts, as the redeemed of the Lord, we express then at this table our thanksgiving. And here we commune with our risen Savior as the redeemed body, saying together in this communion as saints, all glory Be to Christ as Lord. Father, we come then before you here and ask that you would work within our soul, within our hearts, to draw us ever closer as we consider the event, the prophetic word. And now as we come to this symbol, this time of communion with our risen Christ and our brothers and sisters in Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would Declare here in our heart of hearts that you are sovereign Lord over every square inch and that by your mercy alone in eternity past you declared of our believing hearts mine. May you draw us close through Christ we pray. Amen.